Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Tracy Plough. Tracy is the director of the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services and has been a member of Governor John Kasich's cabinet since January of 2011. She brings strong policy background to her role, having served twice as Ohio's state Medicaid director and also a deputy director for both the Ohio Department of Developmental Disabilities and the Ohio Office of Budget and Management. So, Tracy, welcome. Thank you. Okay. You've witnessed a lot since the beginning of the opioid epidemic. Can you just give us a sense for that? We are working on a broad array of fronts, everything from prevention, treatment, recovery supports, and life-saving measures with members of communities all over Ohio. I think one observation that I have, having examined this in recent years, is that because addiction is affecting so many families and communities, there really has been, to some extent, a reduction in the stigma associated with addiction. I think people are more aware that this transcends all walks of life, and it's important to try to connect people with treatment and recovery. Communities are approaching that in different ways. So a lot of different ways, and I know you've been exposed to a lot of them. Um, I want to get into that in just a second, but first, you do something interesting. I, I, I read that every couple of weeks you volunteer at the crisis center near your home? Yeah, I'm a volunteer for almost 10 years now with the Helpline of Delaware and Morrow Counties. And uh, when I moved to the area, I wanted to get involved in some sort of behavioral health uh, volunteering. This was long before I worked for mental health and addiction services, but I just felt that it was important. I very strongly believe that every person should be volunteering in some way, shape, or form in life in order to help uh, better the lives of others. And so that was um, something that uh, fit into my schedule, and uh, I... Um, I feel like I've made, you know, a small contribution within within the area, but it's the right thing to do. Yeah, and still to this day you're doing that. Yes. That's neat. That's, yeah. that's really great, and that's got to keep you grounded in terms of what's really going on out there in the real world, so to speak. 
Yeah, I had I had an experience uh, a number of months ago where a woman called. She was early in her recovery from addiction, heroin addiction, and she was just talking. And she has no idea who I am or what I do for a living. But she made comments about how the governor's um, work on the opiate epidemic has really led to some positive changes. And yeah. I didn't relate, you know, what I do for a living or anything. But I went back and actually shared that with the governor, and I said yeah. unsolicited feedback. That's great. That's great. So, what should people know about what? you and your department can do in terms of for them in terms of providing resources and helping them in this struggle well, I think first and foremost, we have a toll-free bridge line that is available. People can call and uh, learn more about resources that exist within their area of Ohio if they're looking for um, mental health or addiction services or different kinds of recovery supports. Um, it's an 800 number. Um, that's 877-275-6364. And our toll-free bridge line is staffed by individuals who have lived experience with mental illness or addiction, and I think it's a, a great community service. So would they be able to do referrals and connect uh, within individual counties? Say? Yes. Excellent. Yes. Great. So that's something available on our website. Um, we uh, fund direct uh, treatment and services across the state. We're also a regulator. We do licensure and certification of uh, different treatment providers in Ohio uh, related to the provision of behavioral health services. So you vet all the service providers in Ohio to license them? Those that are publicly funded, yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We certify uh, community providers and we license inpatient hospital, uh, psychiatric hospital providers. Okay. So if a family had a question about uh, the legitimacy, say, of a service provider, they'd be able to contact your offices and learn, you know, uh, about their licensing. They could do that, and yeah. they could uh, lodge uh, complaints with us. We could uh, make a referral if we're not the appropriate agency. But, yeah, okay. if they have quality concerns, they could certainly contact us. Kind of a watchdog for them. In the sense, yes. Yeah, okay, great. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the programs that the governor and the state has mm -hmm. uh, started, such as uh, Start Talking. What's Start Talking all about? So Start Talking is a free and uh, voluntary prevention program that works to educate uh, the parents of young people about the risks of prescription drugs. We know that in today's fast-paced society, oftentimes parents are running in one direction and the kids are running in a different direction. And what this program encourages is just straight talk, factual information, so that parents, number one, can educate themselves about some risks that may be in existence within their own household, but also really give them some ideas about how to engage with a middle school student or a high school student about risk-taking behaviors generally. Yeah. That's awfully, that's oftentimes an awkward subject to tackle yes. for a parent. Yes, yes. I was uh, at a high school uh, a couple of years ago, and I asked uh, kids to raise their hand if their parents have actually talked with them in the last six months about um, the risks of drugs or alcohol. Not too many kids raised their hands. And I said, well, what about sex? And more hands went up. So, hmm. um, you know, obviously another example of risk-taking behavior, but there seems to be more emphasis on um one subject in particular, you know, versus another. So um, I think we just wanted to put some free resources in the hands, not only of parents, but also um, uh, educators within the schools. So every week, every other week, rather, we send out a quick email with some additional information that can be used either at home or in a classroom setting. And um, Start Talking also includes a 
direct engagement with youth component, um, uh, uniformed officers from the Ohio National Guard, the Highway Patrol, or local law enforcement are asked to go into um, practice environments for high school athletes or maybe even, you know, the student council or the band and um, talk about how as athletes or, you know, various um, leaders in their school, they're watched by their peers and the decisions that they are making are influencing the decisions of others. And so it's called five minutes for life. Just take five minutes and, you know, talk about the importance to be a positive leader within your peer group. And so you gather the leaders and you teach them that in yes. five minutes for life. Yeah. That's fantastic. And since the program was established in early 2014, there have been uh, more than 700 of these five minutes for life events, and they have reached uh, um, thousands of students, more than 70,000 students. So wow. um, they're and again, it's it's all uh, voluntary and uh, free. There's a starttalking.ohio.gov website where parents can get more information. Okay. So let's move on to another program, uh, the state's support of naloxone, yes. the life-saving yes. drug that's, uh, that's out there. Um, let me just share what another community is doing, and we'll come back to everything that we're doing in the state. But this is a kind of an extreme case. In the city of Baltimore, mm-hmm. they've gone on a mission to equip every single citizen put naloxone in everybody's medicine cabinet. 620,000 people. It's interesting because uh, they're committed to that. And, you know, my thought is that they're going to save a heck of a lot of lives with it. Um, But will all of them be used? No, a fraction of them will end up being used. But in the process, they break the stigma a little bit, you know, because all of those families, that's 620,000 households that are educated on this and now have a better understanding of this disease. So anyhow, the question is, tell us a little bit about the program uh, that you've initiated with Naloxone for our state. And then from there, let's maybe speak to, would it be practical to do something like that and think about that for perhaps some select markets here in Ohio? We've actually taken a number of steps in Ohio to make naloxone more available. Um, First of all, we have an earmark within our department's budget to set aside $500,000 to equip first responders with naloxone. And this is a program that's run through the county health departments. So EMS, fire, law enforcement can work with the county health department to um, obtain the supply that they need. Um, In last year's data, we know that we had almost 2,400 saved directly as a result of those uh, kits that that were made available to first responders. Um, We've redirected even more money this year, an additional $200,000 to help augment uh, that resource. Additionally, the Ohio Department of Health um, has uh, Project DAWN sites. DAWN stands for Deaths Avoided with Naloxone, where individuals who are currently struggling with addiction, their friends, their family members can go to one of these 44 sites across the state and obtain free naloxone kits to have on hand in the event of a um, an overdose. We certainly don't want anyone to be using, but in the event that they are and a life can be saved, I mean, that's, that's critically important. So, um, 
That's another step. The state of Ohio has also changed the law recently to allow um, pharmacies to carry uh, naloxone over the counter. And so um, while there is a cost to actually purchase at, at a pharmacy that's participating, um, we you know, see that as one other opportunity to make this more available. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we are continuing to hone our strategies here, but we're trying to make it um, as accessible as possible for folks. So let's talk a little bit about your budget then for a second. The 500K mm-hmm. is the budget? Well, so, just for the first responders piece, yes. Okay. So um, right now the first responders, their job has gotten uh, much more, infinitely more difficult over the course of the past, I think it's a year and a half, maybe a little longer, with <clears throat> the advent of fentanyl-laced mm-hmm. heroin and now car fentanyl. Yes. So fentanyl, 100 times the strength, roughly, of heroin, and then car fentanyl, 100 times the strength of fentanyl, 10,000 times the strength of heroin. So the doses. Um, I'm told that you know six or more doses of naloxone to bring somebody back. So now your inventory, kind of your, your requirement, your, your demand for this from EMS is kind of skyrocketing right now. So the budget, are they going to be able to keep up? Uh, that is unclear at this time. We're aware that communities are using other sources to purchase naloxone as well. In some cases, the, the Adam boards, the alcohol, drug addiction, and mental health boards are, are funding resources. In some cases, um, a county commissioner may have, you know, they may have appropriation locally. So there, there are different resources that are, um, called upon. It isn't just the state dollars. Um, community hospitals sometimes equip local EMS with, uh, with access to the, these, uh, these kits also. Um, I think we don't have a full handle on the number of naloxone or Narcan kits that are being administered. We know how many people are presenting with overdoses at emergency departments. We know ultimately how many people are um, dying of, of overdose. But if I get a kit at CVS and end up administering it to a family member, that isn't necessarily recorded anywhere. And so it's a a little bit of a moving target, but I mean, we are committed to um, taking every step that we can to make sure that we're meeting the demand, uh, you know, to, to the extent that we have resources to do so. Okay. So which other programs would you like to talk about? Oh, gosh. Sometimes it takes a person uh, to have engagement with uh, the justice system in order to decide it's time to connect with treatment. Um, Our medical director at the department says that no one gets into treatment because their drug addiction is going very well. And so... um, Interesting. I haven't heard that before. That's good. Sometimes it's, you know, a a brush with death due to overdose. Sometimes it's being arrested, um, you know, having your children taken away. Different people have different life experiences that help them to realize that now is the time. And um, we know that if someone is faced with the choice of going to jail or prison or participating in treatment through a supervised specialty docket drug court program, that uh, choice there and their choice to participate in the drug court may help lead them to treatment. Sure. It can be pretty motivating. Yeah. 
So we've seen an expansion of drug courts in Ohio, and we actually fund uh, some of the administrative expense of um, a number of these courts, and we also fund treatment and recovery services related to some of these courts. And so I think that's an opportunity where we've seen that people are more likely to be stably housed as they graduate from drug court, more likely to be employed, uh, least, less likely to recidivate, um, you know, and, and have further interaction with the criminal justice system. So... Again, it's a local decision to establish a, a court, but from a diversion perspective, I think that helps to keep people served in the community and out of jail in many cases and, you know, hopefully connect with long-term recovery. And they've been very successful in our community. In uh, Summit County, mm -hmm. Judge Teodosio, yes. uh, he's done a tremendous job. He, he, uh, he renamed his court. He calls it the turning point. And uh, it, it's because it's the turning point in these people's lives, and and they've been able to change many, many lives. In uh, Cuyahoga County, Judge Mattia, mm -hmm. he's been doing it for a long time, and he was one of our first podcasts, in fact. And, and um, yeah, I, it's very impressive because it's not a court that you, when you traditionally you think of a court, you know, and what a courtroom's all about, that's not it. This is a compassionate process that they go through where they link them up with all of the resources that they need for recovery. Uh, yes. Another program that I think we've made a lot of progress in the last few years is peer support. Um, individuals who have lived experience with uh, addiction or mental illness and they are doing well in their recovery have a unique opportunity to engage others who are earlier in their journey. And so um, this is not a clinical service. This is a way to help um, foster um, hope and offer a positive example of why recovery and why treatment is very important. Um, to others. And so um, we have in the last few years trained over 500 people in Ohio to be peers. And uh, this is... So these are people that have gone through recovery mm -hmm. and you've got a special training program to yes. teach them how to be peers, in essence, mentors yes. for others. Yes. We have 40 hours of classroom experience and then 16 hours of online training that's necessary. Um, and then the individual needs to take a test and it touches on things like, you know, ethical conduct and... Um, you know, how to effectively engage individuals. And then they are um, designated by our department that they are fit to become peers and they could work in, you know, a wide variety of settings, in jails, in hospitals, in um, community centers that serve people who are in recovery, in, in provider treatment organizations. Um, so I think this is a nice complement to clinical treatment that, you know, may in some cases help cajole folks to connect with recovery and then also help to sustain them on, on their path forward. Wow. I was unaware. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That is really great. So um, to learn more about that, how would... Uh how would, where do people go? We have information on our website, which is mha.ohio.gov. Okay. And uh, you can find a link for peer support there in the, the drop-down boxes on the front page. Okay. Um, so when somebody's ready to go into treatment, the window closes in a very short period of time mm -hmm. in many cases. It's such an emotional decision on uh, on their part. I have a number of uh, comments I would make to that question. It is um, a, a complicated situation depending on what the um, circumstances in a particular community. Um, 
quite a number of providers have if um, they have sort of rolling admissions, and so if they do not have a bed available that day, they will kind of bring the person into a readiness group or something to you know help them be engaged until they have space that's available. So what's a readiness group? Describe the components maybe of that. Um, they would um, convene you know maybe once or twice a week to um, talk about what to expect in treatment. Do you have a safety plan in, in the near term? Are you connected with anyone you know with like a support group? support, informal supports that would um, help you to maintain uh, sobriety or stay safe until you can actually enter a, a bed. Um, mm -hmm. There has also been an increase in um, withdrawal management programs that are not connected to going to a facility. And so um, local healthcare centers, as an example, like federally qualified health centers, um, offer ambulatory detox. This is where you have a physician who is prescribing um, some uh, medication to help you with the symptoms of withdrawal and you stay at your house or you stay with you know with someone who you already know you don't actually enter a facility and there if you're going to explore medication assisted treatment like vivitrol suboxone something like that you need a period of abstinence you know several 72 days 72 hours yeah where right? you're not yeah. where you're not um uh, haven't had any opiates. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, getting through that period and, and um, helping to minimize some of the symptoms that come along with withdrawal is, is a part of this, but then inducting them into um, the medication assisted, um, both the, the, the medication and the counseling that goes along with it. But they do that on an intensive outpatient or an outpatient basis rather than going into um, a residential treatment. So this has actually helped to meet the demands for treatment in some communities without building structures for which reimbursement is often elusive. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure you're aware of the federal restriction on um, 16 beds using Medicaid to yeah to fund more than than 16 beds, and that has. Um, presented some obstacles, candidly, in Ohio and, and other states. Why can't they just blow that away? Technically, that legislation could be passed, and there is uh, uh, there are bills pending in Congress to, to do that. The problem is that when it is scored from a um, financial perspective by the CBO, it it would have a significant cost because there are so many programs currently in the United States that are not receiving reimbursement that would henceforth be eligible. So the cost to federal Medicaid would be sizable. And I don't have that number in front of me, but, but folks have looked at this. So do I think it's a good idea? Absolutely, because it would help remove further barriers to treatment. And, um, you know, our department, our administration has been on record that we would support um, either an elimination or a modification to the IMD to allow, you know, instead of 16 beds, what about 24? Because then you could run maybe two groups rather than, you know, 16 is a bit of an awkward number from a programming perspective, too. Oh, is it? So I, I, I was unaware of that. So even if you increased... For IMD, mm -hmm. you know, the, the number, that would be helpful. So I, there are different ways that, that we could look at this. We know that Ohio has about 100 um, residential treatment centers that are programs that are um, uh, in existence. About 79% of the beds, the last time that I looked, of these programs 
are subject to the IMD exclusion. Meaning 79%? That, did yes. Okay. Of the beds, not Got of the programs themselves. Okay. Mm -hmm. So those organizations and individuals who receive treatment there are not eligible to receive Medicaid reimbursement because of the size of the facility. But if you shrink down, you also shrink the capacity. So it's it's sort of a catch-22. Um, so um, on the federal side, there has been some movement on IMD exclusion recently. Um, the feds have recently changed some of their Medicaid managed care regulations that would allow Medicaid managed care plans like Buckeye or CareSource, you know, in Ohio are two examples, to fund treatment services in these settings, which are freestanding, you know, behavioral health centers not connected with a medical surgical hospital, for example, but only if the treatment lasts 15 days or less. So for inpatient psychiatry, which is also subject to this exclusion, that actually works relatively well because the lengths of stay are usually four to five days. But on the substance use disorder side, no one goes for residential treatment for only 15 days. It's, you know, usually much longer than that. And so the reimbursement option really pragmatically still does not exist with the recent change that the feds made. But I think the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, excuse me, Medicare and Medicaid Services, is trying to work within the confines of the law today to make treatment a little bit more accessible. Yeah. So their hands are tied. Really. So if Congress changed the law, that... That would open it up. That would open it up. Okay. Um, so, you, Tracy, you've had the opportunity to work with a lot of communities throughout our fine state um, and observe what they've done in relation to the uh, opioid epidemic. You've probably seen some really some great practices and great programs in place. Do you care to share a few of those with us? Oh, sure. There, there's a lot of examples. Um, just last week, I was in Dayton in Montgomery County, and um, they are formalizing the way that the various governmental and nonprofit organizations work together in order to collectively address the opiate epidemic. And um, they're adopting a uh, critical incident management approach. So if you have a if you have a flood or if you have a certain circumstance in your community, there is a critical incident management team that comes together that um, you know works to achieve better results of wherever you are at that baseline moment, and they're adopting this approach for uh, the opiate epidemic. And the County Department of Health is going to be sort of quarterbacking the effort. And they're working to baseline where they are on certain um, interventions today. So how many um, naloxone kits are available to first responders? How many um, treatment uh, residential beds are available, et cetera? And then for a specific period of time, they will work on interventions that are specifically designed to increase the results relative to the baseline. And then they'll assess their results, and then they will recalibrate the approach or change the approach or add different things in order to better achieve progress. So this is a um, emergency management oftentimes uses this sort of approach, but they're actually applying it here and working with a set of um, groups that have not traditionally embraced this kind of management approach. In this particular context, we've got detox, say, in this process. Mm -hmm. You've got detox and then, you know, maybe inpatient, 
right? And then you've got intensive outpatient, mm -hmm. and then from there you've got, uh, you know, group, et cetera. And so you've got several different steps. I won't, you know, do the whole, you know, process, if you will, of recovery, but several different steps along the way here. Are we saying that they're coming up with a baseline and taking a look at each of these areas and examining, you know, uh, the baseline for each one of these and, and perhaps uh, addressing any shortfalls that they have in terms of dealing with that along the way? And I wouldn't say it's just uh, related to the service continuum either. So you mm -hmm. might have the number of recovery housing uh, mm -hmm. opportunities available or um, how many individuals who present at the emergency department are ultimately connected to treatment. You know, yeah. if, if they are um, uh, victims of overdose and they're, they're transported to the ED, how many of those um, individuals are ultimately connected and sustained in treatment? So, so there's different kinds of measures that Got are it. more multifaceted than just the treatment services but, available. But that's really fantastic news that they're doing something really proactive as far as that's concerned and looking at the whole picture. Um, because your, your, your problem that you traditionally have here is your drop from one service to the next, 35%, as they go from one to the next to the next. Um, and so I assume as part of this program, they're going to look at that. And we know that people who sustain in treatment have much better outcomes in terms of avoiding relapse and, and maintaining recovery. And so I really look forward to watching the progress of the Montgomery County team as they're, they're launching this officially at the beginning of 2017. So they're in the planning process now. But I think it's really exciting, and I think other communities could learn from this Terrific. and you know think about applying elements that would work for them. We'll have to visit them. Yeah. That'll be good. Yeah. Um, so next up, you discovered something, I believe, in Lucas County. So um, Lucas County has been very engaged um, between the local law enforcement and the, the courts, the justice community, and the treatment providers, including the hospitals. And they have um, taken an approach similar to Coleraine Township down near Cincinnati, where if a person overdoses and let's say they're transported to the local emergency department, um, there is a, um, a team within the sheriff's office there that um, works with treatment professionals and others to try to help cajole that individual to connect with treatment. Maybe not that day, but maybe the next day or, you know, they, they, they create um, more opportunities, I think, to um, not in a punitive way, but in a constructive way, try to influence the individual to seek the help that could be life-saving for them. Okay. And um, I, I think the, the Adam board locally and um, other partners have really um, tried to expand capacity in some different ways through these partnerships that they've built around this general challenge. Um, Another example is, you, you know, you mentioned when people are ready for treatment, they want to seek it at that moment. I think in, in Summit County, they are taking steps to try to make more um, short-term housing available to individuals who are, um, you know, initiating their treatment path. And, uh, you know, I appreciate the leadership of the, the local Adam board there. Jerry Craig. Jerry Craig and mm -hmm. others in, in yeah. really rethinking some of the process flow as it relates to the system so that access can be um, more immediately available to individuals. Yeah. So the question for you, Tracy, is 
if another community wanted to put together a quick response team, could they come and, and is there some a way where they might be able to get some support and some funding through the state for that? We don't have a specific subsidy for that, but I think the first step would be that the local partners agree that this is the path that they want to take. Mm -hmm. um, so assuming that happens, I think um, they should examine what resources they have at their disposal, which might be um, redirected in order to help achieve that goal. And um, we, we are always um, available and open to talking to communities about specific gaps that they have and, you know, understanding if there's anything that we could do to help. And so um, I think of a situation with a community a, a little over a year ago now where there was a, a grant from one state agency, more than $800,000 was available um, for that could be used for treatment for individuals who are addicted. But the treatment community was unaware of this. And so they're just, you know, sometimes there are opportunities just by talking to each other that you can unlock access to resources. Absolutely. Um, so... But but assuming that that is not available within a community, I mean, we are always open to have a discussion. We don't have a specific subsidy that funds exactly that, but we do have subsidies that run to the local Adams boards. We have um, some targeted um, funding for different topics um, like courts. So are any of these folks, you know, drug court involved mm -hmm. that maybe, you know, a portion could be offset that way. Um, we've got specific resources for recovery housing or this or that. So, so I think, you know, if, if folks come to us and say, this is a need, I can't make any promises, but I think we would try to work with the other state agencies to say, is there anything available that we might be able to, um, Assist. Okay. But so a community identifies a gap. How do they engage you to help address that gap? Um, well, I guess really all they would need to do is contact us. Um, our local leads, the local planning authorities are the Adam boards. And so if I get a call from, let's say, a police chief or um, a local health official, I would my first call would be back to the Adam board to say, are you engaged with this individual or this organization? To what extent? What do you think of their concept, et cetera? Um, so, I mean, sometimes we have some some resources available, sometimes we don't. It kind of depends on what the proposal is and if there's something, um, Got it. you know, like that falls within some of our funding parameters that would be, you know, an appropriate use. Okay. So let's talk about a, a program for a minute that's outside the state. Um, in uh, Boston, they have a program that's uh, in place now. It's called SPOT. And that is a supportive place for observation and treatment. So what SPOT does is it offers engagement, support, and medical monitoring um, for people that have just used, in essence, and it's, it's a safe place for them to go. Uh, envision a room that has, you know, 10 or 12 lazy boys in it with professionals there that monitor them and they put a little clip on their finger, in fact, make sure that they're safe so that they don't overdose. If they do go into overdose, of course, they're, they're ready to handle it. Um, but they also offer to them uh, support in terms of treatment and options for treatment and, and uh, that type of thing. But what they're doing here in the process is they're getting uh, people that otherwise would be using, uh, you know, laying in a gutter someplace and wandering the streets, getting them off the streets and getting them in a safe environment with the hope of 
bringing them into treatment at some point in time. Mm -hmm. So a unique program. And the, the overall question is, what about the viability of a program such as that, a similar program here in our state? Um, we actually hear more about this sort of concept as it relates to mental health. Um, and I can think of a couple of examples in other states, you know, where, where that sort of approach is, has been brought to bear successfully. So, um, I, we would certainly be open to examining that, but I think in the context of some specific proposal. Start from the community. Yeah. At the yeah, community level, yeah. which makes complete sense. So let's take this one step further, the, the discussion here about different things mm -hmm. taking place elsewhere. Uh, safe injection sites. Mm -hmm. So that's gotten uh, a lot of play, in fact, out in Washington, mm -hmm. the Seattle area, King County. Uh, they put together, the, well, they've got a, a comprehensive uh, plan that they introduced last month that included that. Um, in New York, they're pressing for that and, and pushing for it. What are your thoughts, or have, have you examined that enough? A safe injection site. So in other words, some place where someone who has already purchased their, uh, their drugs, if you will, heroin or whatever, and um, they go to a site to safely, um, without fear of incarceration, safely shoot up, um, and in the meantime have uh, you know safe needles, <clears throat> medical monitoring professionals that are right there to aid them, and of course with the overall goal of getting them into treatment and helping them ultimately. So that's what those those programs are. You know, from a very high level, that's what that program is. Uh, it's being done in, uh, I believe it's 93 or thereabouts, 83, 93 locations worldwide, but nowhere in the United States. The only one in North America would be Vancouver. Um, so anyhow, having said that, the, the question is, has, has the state thought about that or, or considered that type of thing at all? To my knowledge, the state has not uh, considered that sort of approach. Um, there have been an increase in recent years of needle exchange programs, and that has um, been a subject of controversy, candidly, in, in some of the areas where, you know, locally it's, it's being considered. Um, we, even thinking about needle exchange, from a public health perspective, it is a very good idea. It helps you know, I think it offers an intervention opportunity, number one, to hopefully connect people with treatment resources, but it also helps to um, uh, decrease the uh, incidence of um, hepatitis C, HIV, other sort of bloodborne illnesses. That is about as edgy as the state of Ohio has, has been in that particular engagement area. So um, I just... Thinking about this, I mean, you would need some probably changes in law because it is illegal to possess and to um, uh, administer uh, illicit drugs. And so I'm not even really sure what the first step would need to be if you were going to establish some sort of safe zone for this that I'm assuming would be medically supervised. It would be. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not something that we've had policy discussions on at the, at the state level, at least during my tenure. Might be an interesting thing to keep an eye on um, because, as, as I said, in King County, they seem to be the most progressive. 
Uh, but uh, New York is pushing for it right now and uh, has a proposal in to do some type of a study, not a trial yet, but a, a close study on it and some funding to do that. So might be interesting to, to keep an eye on that. Okay. Um, two other program or one other program of, of note, and that is um, Perry. Uh, this is one that came out of uh, the Boston area, and that's Police Assisted Addiction Recovery uh, Intervention. Um, and now it's starting to take off a little bit. In the state, we have, um, I believe, 20 different precincts that have adopted it. What are your thoughts on Perry? I think that um, it's another way to try to engage people and connect them with treatment. Um, I actually think that um, it, it shows a different side of law enforcement. I mean, it's not punitive. It's really trying to help people in a different way. It's a culture change. Yeah. It's a yeah. real culture change. So I, I think, um, again, it's, it's an opportunity. Funding oftentimes is a question of how to sustain this kind of approach. Um, it needs to be prioritized, obviously, within, you know, the budget of the department or within the community. But, uh, you know, sort of like the black robe effect that people talk about with the courts, I think having, um, you know, a law enforcement officer in some way, shape or form, you know, try to connect someone with treatment, I think that can be a... Um, positive influence on someone's choices. So um, explain the black robe effect. Oh, uh, judges. Yeah. So if you uh, have the uh, choice of incarceration or enrollment in uh, a you know, judicially supervised treatment program, uh, oftentimes people will make the choice to connect with treatment, where if not given that choice, they you know, may not have availed themselves of that opportunity. Okay. Um, so last summer, there was a rally at Lock 3 in Akron. And one of the things that came out of that rally was a big demand to the governor, the governor's office, to declare it a state of emergency over the opioid epidemic. I wanted to give you an opportunity to comment on that. Sure. Um, the Kasich administration and the General Assembly have made significant investment in uh, treatment and recovery supports in recent years, recognizing that we do have an opiate epidemic underway. Um, I recognize, though, that folks want to see additional investment. Legally, and I'm not a lawyer, but legally, um, I don't know that any sort of declaration that the governor can make would yield immediate additional resources. I think that if the state of Ohio wants to invest additional resources in addiction treatment, recovery supports, it would need to be contemplated through the regular legislative executive uh, budget process. And um, as it happens, you know, we will be having a biennial budget process initiate later this winter. Um, but the governor, just by making a declaration like that, cannot unlock the budget stabilization fund and, you know, uh, flow a specific amount of resources out to communities. I mean, it takes legislative appropriation and it takes a process. So it's not as if he hasn't heard that. He understood that that was the request. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's something that is out of his hands. He, he really can't do that. I, I don't think, from what I understand from lawyers, that is possible. Yeah. Okay. So, Tracy, I want to thank you for your time today. This has uh, really just uh, been really great. Um, so what final thoughts would you like to share about the opioid epidemic in general and uh, maybe how our listeners 
can make a difference in their community. So I think, as I said earlier, there is something that every single person can do. The first thing is go clean out your medicine cabinet. Uh, there are drug take-back boxes in many communities. There are opportunities to, um, you know, go to a take-back day and drop off your unused medication. There's even that bag now that they've got, right, with the charcoal filter in it. You just dump them in the bag, dump a little water in the bag. A couple of minutes, they're no good. You put them in the trash, right, right in your own home, right? I think... Yeah. Not eliminating that potential diversion opportunity for friends and family to get in there is so important. So everybody can take stock of that within their household. So you uh, see that that happens often. Oh, yes. That those drugs yes. make it out there yes. just real, real often. Yes. And people don't even kind of, they think, well, no, it's fine. It's in my medicine cabinet, but no. And then the teenager from next door or from within the family or the adult who's drug seeking. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that can be avoided. Um, also, I think just spending time talking with young people in your family, in your neighborhood about the risks associated with any sort of drug use behavior. Um, I know we have medical marijuana that's, that's now you know, going to be legal in the state. I think that will further um, challenge our prevention efforts because kids will hear, oh, it's okay to do this and it's a drug. And so these other drugs might be okay too. And mixed message, mixed message. Yes. And so I'm very concerned about that. I think anything that you can do to talk with young people is important. And then finally, I think, you know, get connected with your local coalition, get connected with what's happening in your community. Um, if, if you're concerned about this from a, um, a health perspective, a, um, you know, family stability perspective, property crimes. I mean, there, there are so many different sorts of concerns, but everybody can get involved somehow. So, um, you know, supporting, learn how you can support people who are currently in recovery, learn how you can assist with prevention efforts. There's all kinds of opportunities. Outstanding. Boy, thank you. Thank you, Greg. So we've been visiting today with Tracy Plow. Tracy is the director of the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services and has been a member of the governor's cabinet since January of 2011. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.